listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. It's good to see y'all 11 o'clock. I don't know if you know this, but you guys are actually the, this is the most space we've had all day. This is beautiful. I mean, uh, eight o'clock for some reason, I guess, because people listened, except for y'all. Y'all didn't listen, but thank you for not listening. Because eight o'clock, we had over a thousand people, and we don't have room for the thousand people, so that was interesting. But so glad you're here. For those of you who are in the uh, video venue, appreciate y'all being over there. Um, well, if you're a guest of ours, what we typically do on a Sunday is we do this, but we just open a book of the Bible and we work our way through it. And so in December of 2021, yes, 21, uh, we started this this book called Matthew, uh, and we've been preaching through it. And this is week 60. Uh, usually on Easter, we'll take a kind of a different text and kind of break from the series, but in God's providence and a little manipulation on our part, of course, we come to, on Easter Sunday, the Easter text, uh, Matthew chapter 28. I looked, I didn't remember what I preached last year on Easter, so I had to look back, and so I preached Matthew 9 on Easter last year. So we've made it a whole 18 chapters in a year, y'all. We've been moving, all right? We're good. You guys are doing great. But we come to Matthew 28 today, and all I want us to do is something very simple. I want us to hear and listen to the angel, the angel. Um, I, I don't know where you're at with angels. I believe in angels because the scripture teach angels, the existence of angels. There's angels that are here right now observing us worship, marveling at the, the gospel. Um, I've never seen an angel, just so you know. I never uh, met anyone that saw an angel. Angel sightings are kind of like Elvis sightings. We hear about them, we're like, yeah, right, okay. Yeah, he's in the Bahamas, I get it, right? But, but angels are real. And uh, scripture teaches that angels are ministering spirits that are sent by God to minister to his elect. And this angel that's in this text this morning has a message for them, but it also for us. And, and he's just gonna point us to do three things. And, that, and that's really our, our Easter message this morning is three things from this angel. And where we left off, if you weren't here last week, is it was Good Friday, Matthew 27, that Jesus is nailed to a cross, that he breathes his last and he gives up his spirit. He dies on a cross for our sins. He's, but then he is buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, a prophecy of Isaiah 53, that he was with rich men in his death. He's buried in a tomb. On Saturday of, of last week, what would have happened, uh, the chief priest went to the governor, Pontius Pilate, and said, sir, uh, this man said he was gonna come back from the dead. So just to make sure, can we put some guards by the tomb just to make sure he doesn't come back from the dead, right? Because that would be the worst thing that could happen if, he, if, he's, if his disciples stole his body or something. So put a guard. And Pilate says, go ahead and put a guard. See how that works. Good luck to that, right? And that's where we pick up in our text this morning. Let me read our text in its entirety, and then we'll come back and look at what the angel has to say to us. Verse one. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. 
Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the text starts out, and it is after the Sabbath, aka Sunday morning, early. And and Matthew highlights that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, how'd you like to be known as the other Mary? But these two Marys are headed to the tomb. And the other gospel accounts say that there's actually more ladies that are going to the tomb as well. But Matthew focuses on these. And sometimes you'll hear, well, you know, there's, there's contradictory reports of the resurrection. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's all these different details. And if you're wondering, why, why does this one say this and this one say this and this one seems to be here and this one seems to be here? Because different people retell different stories in different ways on, according to what is important to them, according to the focus that they're kind of trying to go at. Doesn't mean they're contradictory. It just means they're complementing each other. They're filling in the gaps. And so, for instance, I, I coach a high school baseball team. And so if you ask me, how was your game on Thursday night? What happened? It's one of the parents is laughing at me right now. Yes, I know. I would bow my head and say, we walked 17 people. Now, if you know anything about baseball, you know that's not good. And I would say, but we scored nine runs in one inning, which is also not good for the other team. But then we blew a five-run lead and lost the game. That's what I would tell you. But if you ask this person over here, this mom of this child over here, they would say, my son hit the ball, which is not normal probably for their son. So that's, that's a win. He popped up to the pitcher. That's not good, but it's better than the normal. That's what that, and then this person over here, you say, how was the game? Well, the Nats were horrible and the umpires were horrendous and the other coach was obnoxious, right? That's what they would say. And this person would be like, well, I had to park a while away. I almost got hit by a foul ball and they ran out of Snickers bars. And, and this person over here would be like, the seventh inning, oh, it was horrible, but the third inning was great. And the fourth inning, my son did this. And, and everyone would have a different angle on it and they would all be true, but it would be based on their perspective and their focus and what's important to them. That's what the gospel writers are doing. And so for Matthew, he's a high level guy. We've seen that. So he's just given a summary that the Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary. And what you have to remember is these ladies are broken, y'all broken. The the one that they've been following for three years, the one they loved, the one they thought there was their Messiah was gone. And so with one final act of love, because he was buried so quickly on Friday and it was a Sabbath, so they couldn't finish all the burial rites. They're going to go and anoint the body just to be with him one more time. Right. And so they wake up early in the morning. They've been sitting around all Sabbath day because they can't do it on Sabbath day because it's too far to the tomb. They can only go like three quarters of a mile as a Sabbath journey, so they can't do it. So they, they gotta go Sunday morning and all these ladies get together and like, let's get our spices and, and, and they forget the kind of an important fact. There's a big stone in the way. In fact, Mark's gospel says that on the way, they're like, oh my goodness, 
How are we going to get the stone out of the way? Details, details, right? But the stone is not going to be a problem because behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And we're talking stone here. Don't, don't picture just a big boulder in front of the door. It would be something that would be carved and cut out like this, like a big quarter almost, uh, that it was actually be a groove in front of the door so that it could roll in front and roll behind. Now, it's still two tons. It's still very heavy. So these ladies couldn't move it on their own. But this is what we're talking about. And so the angel of the Lord descends from heaven and rolls it away. And don't you love that it says, and he sat on it. He's just sitting there like the thinker. Hello, ladies. I mean, just waiting for them to show up. Now, his appearance, it says, was like lightning. It's literally, he's dressed like lightning. Have you ever seen a bolt of lightning hit close and you're like, that's what, that, that's what they saw. His clothing is as white as snow. He is brilliant. He is blinding. And he's so terrifying for fear of him. The guards trembled and became like dead men. These seasoned soldiers, been in battle, been in combat, they were so terrified that they fainted that they fell out and they're out, all of them, uh, from this angel. Now, I know we have a view of angels like, oh, you know, angels, there's angels. Aren't they cute? Right? Or, or this, that's kind of weird. All right? No one's terrified of that. No one. Right? This will be a more accurate depiction of, of an angel. Okay? That's scary. This is, go get a haircut, son. That's scary. And so when that shows up or something similar, the guards fall out and the angel speaks to the ladies and says what angels always say. The first thing always out of their mouth is fear not, don't be afraid, right? And, and you can imagine, I, I, you know, it doesn't say in the text, but I can imagine the Lord Jesus before he kind of walks away, he tells this angel, okay, dude, there's some women coming. Don't freak them out. I love these ladies. They love me. They think they're going to come annoy me. They're going to be wasting their spices, but they love me. So be very gentle. The guards, freak them out. The ladies, be calm. And so the angel says, don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. Four, key word. He has risen, as he said. Key word, as he said. I know you didn't hear him, but he said it like 20 times. Come. See the place where he lay. And, and, and there lies the first thing that the angel is inviting them to and to you to this morning, this Easter message, this Easter morning. It's come. You're, you're invited. The veil has been torn, right? We saw that last time. The veil that separated God's holiness, his presence from us because we're sinful, that was torn because the substitute, the atonement was made. The veil is torn from top to bottom and God says now, you are invited, Come. And this has been the message, y'all, of the gospel. We have seen this time and time. Again, the same Greek word that is used very early in Jesus's ministry. He's just baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God. And then two of the disciples, as I said, are creeping along behind him, being very strange. And Jesus turns around. He's like, what do y'all seek? What do y'all want? And they said, Rabbi, where, where are you staying tonight? You know what he says? Come, let's see. He walks by the Sea of Galilee, sons of Zebedee, Peter. You know what he says? Our, our English versions say, follow me, but really the Greek text is the same word. It's duete, come, and I will make you fishers of men. 
Another time in his ministry, the disciples are weary, they're tired, they've been serving for weeks and weeks without a rest. He says, come away with me and rest. When the disciples at one point say, get these kids out of here, these kids aren't important. Jesus says, let the children come. Come to me, come to me. Even Peter, good old Peter, when, when Jesus is walking on the water and the disciples are freaked out, what does Peter say? Master, if it's you, really you, command me to come. What does Jesus say? Come on. And maybe the most famous, Jesus says to everybody, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I, the Messiah, Jesus, will give you rest. Our God is an inviting God who says, come, come. And, and it's not, y'all, because you got all dressed up for Easter and you got your bow tie on after 20 minutes of watching YouTube. It's not because you clean yourself up. It's not because you're nice. It's not because you are worthy. It's because he is. That's why you can come. Because these are not a bunch of worthy people, even though they love Jesus. Mary Magdalene, she's got a past. Seven demons she was possessed by. Any of y'all been possessed by seven demons? Maybe your mama thought you were, but really? Peter just denied Jesus. He calls them his brother. He says, tell my brothers. The disciples, these were not like pristine young men. These guys were rejects. The reason they're following Jesus as a rabbi and not some other is because they weren't picked by another rabbi. They're the last chosen guys. They're rejects. The apostle Paul, murdering Christians, opposing the church. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you were last night. This God says, come, you're invited. You're invited, right? And then once you come, he says what? Come and see, look. The, the word is more than, it's more than just I see something. There's a there's perception, there's an experience. Come and see and experience this, this empty tomb. And if you could stick your head in the empty tomb. And here's a picture of, of the, what's called the garden tomb. It may or may not have been where Jesus was actually buried. Probably not. But it's, it's similar. It's close enough. It, it would have been something like this. If you go to Jerusalem, you could see this. But if you could stick your head in, what would you see? Well, you would see the humility of Christ and that he became man and, and obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. You'd see that. You would see the seriousness of your sin. How serious is your sin? I know some of you are playing around with it. I know some of you think it's not a big deal. How serious is your sin? So serious that God had to crush his own son to deal with your sin. That's how serious it is. And you know what the biggest thing you would see if you went in the tomb? is nothing. There's a picture of the inside. There ain't nothing. There's an empty bed. I mean, you could see if you were there originally, you'd see the, the wrappings that just kind of just fell off him. That's, that's all you would see. Why? Because he is not there. Because he is risen. Because he is gone. Understand the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out. That's what I used to think when I was a kid, right? That Jesus is like banging on the door. Hey, let me out. Let me out. And the angels, oh, come, come in. And he rolls it out and Jesus walks out. That's not how it happened. Jesus is gone. He's a glorified body. He can walk through walls. He was gone. The stone is not there so that Jesus is let out. The stone is there so that you are let in to see, so that they could see that it is empty. That's why it's gone, right? And so he wants you to see. 
He's, he is alive. And I, there, there's always the skepticism, right? This, is, this has been attacked since, since it happened. How do we know he's alive? I mean, and of course the Bible says. How do we know the, that he is really alive? You could take the Bible out of it, not that we would, but you can take the Bible out of it. And the, and the resurrection is still one of the best documented, if not the best documented historical events in human history, despite being the most scrutinized heavily, right? That he is alive. And I don't have time to spend hours and hours of apologetics with you to explain that the, the truth of the resurrection, right? But I can tell you this, if the resurrection is not true, then you are wasting your time this morning and you got a little extra sleep compared to the eight o'clock service, but you're still wasting your time. You should just be watching the masters right now and eating ham biscuits. You could have saved yourself a bow tie because if it's a hoax, if it is not true, the apostle Paul says, then we are the most pitiful people ever because you're putting all your eggs, pun intended, in that basket because the, the all of Christianity, understand this, all of Christianity rests on this one event. And if this one event is not true, then none of it's true because he's dead. You're, you're dead in your sins. You have no hope. You have no purpose. You might as well eat and drink for tomorrow you die. That's the reality if this is not true. But it is true. So we do have hope. And let me kind of deal with some of the, the attacks for you, for maybe if you're a Christian, you, you've heard some of these and you didn't know how to answer. So let me give you an answer. And then maybe you're a skeptic and you've heard some of these because you're reading Bart Ehrman or somebody else. And so you need to understand why we believe the resurrection is true. The first attack, the most common is that the disciples stole the body. That's the one that he deals with in the text, right? While they were going, some of the guard went into the city. Once they wake up, they run to the chief priests. They tell them all that took place. Angel, flash, lightning, pass out, wake up, body gone. What do we do? And so they take counsel, the Sanhedrin, and what are we gonna do? Okay, it's a small group of ladies. We can deal with them. It's 11 guys. They're, you know, they're kind of scared right now, so we can deal with them. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pay them off. We're gonna give them sufficient sum of money, some hush money, and we're gonna tell them what to tell them. Tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away. That's a great message. That's a great story. Isn't it interesting? They know the body's gone. They hear about the angel. They still don't believe. Isn't that amazing? It's another story for another day. But then they say, if it comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him. Because here's a problem. Roman soldiers know, if I fall asleep on duty, I'm a dead man. If I lose my prisoner, I'm a dead man. So they have a major problem here. We're dead. We will, they said, we will take care of Pilate. A little do-re-mi, we'll keep him satisfied. And so we'll pay him off just like we're paying you off. So they took the money and they did as they're told. And that is the story that had been spread to the Jews among, to that day. Matthew's gospel most dated around 61, 62 AD. 30 years later, people are still saying, he, his, his disciples stole the body. They, they stole the body. That's what happened. He didn't rise from the dead. They stole the body. Now, let's evaluate that just from a, just practical and logical. I, okay, I know I went to public school and I know I was a PE teacher for six years. So, so give me a break here, okay, a little bit. I never took logic in high school, but that is without a doubt the dumbest thing I've ever heard. They stole the body. These are the guys that as soon as some soldiers show up, they're gone, they run. And if you know where, where are they at right now? They're hiding. Where are they at even after this? 
They're still hiding. They are in a room, locked the door with the chain on, looking through the people. Who is it? It's Mary Magdalene. Oh, hurry up, get in here. They are scared still, probably because they are now they're being told, people are saying, oh, they stole the body. So now they're even more so scared. But even if they could get over this courage that they don't seem to have, and say, okay, we're gonna go on a mission. We're gonna get his body. They're gonna go all Navy SEAL on him. All right, okay, we got it. We can do this. You telling me that these 11 guys and maybe they're like, okay, Peter, you are too big. You have a big mouth. You stay behind. You can be back here. We're gonna, these 10 guys are gonna sneak in to where these soldiers are and sneak around them quietly and somehow roll a two-ton stone out of the way and nobody hears that thing rolling away? You telling me they can do that? What are they taking to sleep? Is there, is there ambient? Is there melatonin? I want some of it, whatever it is. That's how good of a sleeper you are that you didn't hear it on top of that. Okay, if you were asleep, then how do you know who stole the body? Did you have security cameras? I mean, how do you know it was the disciples? It makes no sense logically. It's it's silly, right? The other thing is this. The other thing you kind of hear sometimes is, well, the the disciples didn't steal the body, but the Jews, the leaders, they stole the body. Really? Really? Then how come like a month later when thousands and thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ because they believe he was resurrected, they used to be like, okay, that went sideways. Let's just bring the body out. (laughs) Let's just show them we got the body. It was us. Jinx, you know, psych, whatever. It was us. How come they didn't do that? Because they didn't have the body because they didn't steal the body. Another theory is that, that, uh, that they went to the wrong tomb. You know, Mary and the Marys are all sad. They've been crying all day. It's dark, it's early. So they, they went to 4th Street instead of 5th Street, right? Okay, I'll give you. Mary, the Marys, let's say the Marys went to the wrong tomb. Did Peter and John go to the wrong tomb? Did Joseph of Arimathea, who, it's his tomb. You tell me he forgot where his tomb was? Do you think the chief priests in the Sanhedrin, they went to the wrong tomb? You don't think they checked it out? They knew where it was? It's, it's silly. Another one, even more comical, is that he didn't really die. He just fainted. He just fainted. So after being beaten mercilessly to the point where he can't even carry his own cross and then he was nailed to a cross and then he was stabbed through the heart and wrapped up in 75 pounds of of cloth and spices and in a mummified shape, they put him in the tomb and because it was cold and damp in the tomb, it somehow revived him. Really? Man, we need to get some cold tombs at the hospitals because it seems to provide great results. And then on top of that, he has to get out of a mummified form and then move a two-ton stone all in his weary, beaten self. Are you kidding me? It's silly. The last one is that uh, he was, they all hallucinated. They thought they saw him because they loved him so much. They were so sad that they all just wanted him to be alive so much. So they 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 all hallucinated. So you have at least 513 people mentioned that saw him at different times in multiple locations and they all hallucinated all at the same time. There's, that's some crazy magic mushrooms in Jerusalem those days, right? I have a better suggestion. They saw him because he was alive, because he resurrected as he said, as he said. There's no better explanation that he is alive. See, the disciples didn't have some scheme and some plan. The ladies were going to anoint a body. 
They thought he was dead. They did not even have a concept of a resurrected Messiah. Should they have? Yes. After he told them a bazillion times, I'm going to be risen from the dead. I'm going to be risen from the dead. Just like the son of Jonah. He told them a bunch. But they didn't, they didn't get it. They didn't have a concept for it. They were not thinking resurrection. They thought he was dead. They thought he was dead. Right? Another thing, if you were trying to create a hoax in the first century, the last person you would use as your first witnesses would be women, because in that culture, a woman's testimony was not worth anything. So the first person, that they, they, if they were trying to create a lie, would be not these ladies, not Mary Magdalene, not the other Mary. It would have been Peter. It would have been James. Now, if I'm Jesus, the first person I'm showing up at, I'm showing up at Pilate's house. Hello, sir. And then I'm going to the chief priests right after that. But that's not who he shows up to. He shows up to these precious women who had been faithful and who loved him. We're not trying to create a hoax. And on top of that, think about the radical transformation of these disciples who were scared and hiding. And then 30 days later, they are bold and willing to die. In fact, every single one of the disciples, all of them were killed, swearing that he was alive. If they were lying about it, would they die for a lie? Would you die for a lie? You might die for something you think is true but you're not gonna die for something that you know is not true, right? And not only did they die for something that they believed to be true, they died with, give them no advantage. These were not like early televangelists living on the med with their nice yachts. Send me some money and I'll send you a vial from the Jordan River and we can, you know, they did not live in the dream. These men all died poor. They died suffering. They died hundreds, if not thousands of miles. Thomas gets all the way to India. They all die saying and swearing that he was alive. Why? Because he's alive. Maybe the most convincing to me, even the apostle Paul, I mean, that's obviously convincing. He's killing Christians, resisting Christians. Jesus shows up and he is all of a sudden the apostle but the most convincing is probably a man named James. You know, James was Jesus's younger brother. Remember, he had six brothers and at least two sisters, right? And James, this guy grew up with Jesus as his older brother. And during his ministry on earth, none of his brothers believed in him. Did you know that? They were probably bitter because he never got grounded and they always did. But they, none of them believed in Jesus. In fact, they thought he was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. They thought he was crazy. They were embarrassed by him. Then all of a sudden, something changes. What is it? What would it take for you to believe your older brother was God? I mean, think about it. My, my younger brother thinks that of me, but what about for y'all? What would it take for you to believe that your sibling was God? I don't know. Maybe you being dead and coming back to life. That would be pretty convincing to me. In fact, James goes from not believing in Jesus to becoming the head of the church in Jerusalem and writing what is probably the first New Testament book, a book called Creatively James. Hey, that's a radical transformation. Why? Because he was dead and now he's alive. Like, and I could go into more and more and more, but here's the deal. Out of the four major religions of the world that created around personalities, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, only one claims that their leader came back to life. Only one. 
And, and you are here today, many of you, and there's Christians gathering across the globe, and there has been millions, maybe even billions, people that are completely different, different ethnicities, different ages, different socioeconomic statuses. You got PhDs, you got illiterate, and they are all coming around this common claim. He is alive. He is alive. And if you want to talk more about it, come on. I would love to talk with you about it. If you are if you have questions, because I want you to come and I want you to see and experience. But that's not where the angel leaves it. That's good. But I think that's the problem with some of us as Christians. We're coming. I believe that. Yes, amen. I come and see. That's not where he leaves it, though. He doesn't say, hey, come and see. The tomb's empty. What does he say? He says, go and tell. Right? He says, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And what do they do? They run. So they departed quickly from the tomb. Now there's fear, which I love, and great joy because they're still a little confused of what's going on here. Let's be honest. Their theology is not fully developed. They're not like, oh, I get it. The hypostatic union. Oh, the Trinity. I get this thing now. Of course, I was so blind. They're not there. There's confusion and there's fear, but there is great joy. And so they're running off to tell, tell the disciples and what happens? This is beautiful. Jesus met him. And what does he say? Greetings. It, it's, it's not, you, you would think some high lofty, thou hast comest to me now, children. The, the, a good translation would be like, morning, y'all. How you doing? Good to see you. It's the common greeting of its day. Why? Because our God is a personal God and he is an inviting God and he's not trying to be all separate and uh, distinct. And they're so comfortable. They came and they take hold of his feet and they worship him. And he doesn't say, don't do that because their response is right. Worship is right. And then Jesus tells them this exact same thing the messengers, the angels said. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Go tell them what you see. He doesn't say, here, I want you to go and I want you to explain to them the doctrine of justification uh, by faith and I want you to explain to them uh, the Trinity and all these things. He says, just go tell them I'm alive and I'm gonna meet them in Galilee. Just go tell them. That's all. That's so encouraging to me because I think there's some of us that are like, well, you know, I don't really know much. I don't really, I'm not really a theologian. I don't really, you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to know much. All you have to know is he was dead and now he's alive. That's it. The rest is gravy. We can figure it out together because Paul says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, they're there. He says, you will be saved. See, this is the message of Christianity. This is the message of Easter. That's it. This, this is what it's all about, that Jesus really lived a perfect life that you couldn't live, that he really was nailed to a Roman cross as your substitute for your sins, that he really was buried in a grave and that he really did rise again, being declared the son of God in power so that I can stand up here today and say, I know for a fact that my sins are forgiven. Not because I'm trying to be arrogant, not because I'm trying to be all better than you. No, because Christ died for my sin and he removed the penalty of my sin. And so now I have his righteousness. And in one day, when I breathe my last, whether it's in 10 years or 50 years, I know that he will take me to be to heaven with him. Not because, again, I have anything good in me, because he was resurrected, I will be resurrected. Because when I am in Christ, everything that is true of him is true of me. He was dead, buried, and resurrected, I will be dead, buried, and resurrected. See, this is why we have hope. 
If we have no resurrection, we have no hope. This is why I can suffer and struggle and and wrestle. And even if I feel alone or sad, I can know that God loves me. Why? Because he proved it in his death and his resurrection. D.A. Carson said, there is nothing that can happen to you, nothing that you can experience that a good resurrection can't fix. That is our hope. That is why this is the greatest event. This is the most significant historical event in all of human history, that Jesus has died and rose again. And now he says, I'm gonna be in Galilee. And the idea there is he's going before you. It's not that I'm gonna get there first. This is just what Jesus always does. It's what he's still doing. That God goes beforehand, Ephesians 2.10, that God prepares good works beforehand that you would walk in them. That your God is right ahead of you and he is leading you and he just wants you to follow him, right? That you would come and see and experience and believe and that you would go and tell and he will lead you as you follow him. What is the message of the angel? Come, you're invited, wherever you've been. See, experience, know that he was dead and he is alive. And now, go and tell that he was dead and he's alive, that he offers forgiveness. And what the angel is is doing is he's inviting you into uh, the never-ending story. You ever see the never-ending story? One of the greatest movies of the 80s. If you haven't seen it, it's on Amazon, go get it. And if you, let, me, let me summarize it for you if, you if you haven't seen it. It's about a little boy and he goes into a bookstore because he's hiding. And there's an old man there, he's reading this old ancient book. He says, get away, I don't like kids here. You go play your video games, this is place for books. And the kid says, I love books. He said, oh yeah, comic books. No, I love books, Robin's Crusoe, 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Lord of the Rings, Robin Hood. And, and the guy's interest peeks up, he says, He says, you wouldn't be interested. This book's not for you. Those books you like, they're safe. He said, safe? What do you mean they're safe? He said, when you finish reading those, you go back to being a little boy and doing your thing. This book's not safe. It's not for you. The phone rings. He goes off into the back office. And the little boy does what all little boys would do. Snakes that book, runs out the store and leaves a note. I'll bring your book back. And he goes and reads this book. And what it's about is a world that is falling apart. It is overcome with brokenness and darkness. And and when you get to the end of the book, he gets to the end of the book, he realizes that the only way to save the world that he's reading about is if someone will speak a name into the darkness, into the chaos that is tearing that world apart. And that name will recreate what is being destroyed. It'll heal what is being broken and there'll be newness. And all the characters in the story at that moment, they look up and and, and then the camera goes back to the the little boy that's in this attic. He's like, it's not real. That can't be real. It's just a book. It's just a story. And the little princess in the story is like, Bastion, Bastion, call my name. He's like, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. And they're going back and forth. Right? He's like, I can't do it. I can't. I can't. And finally, it comes to a point. He's like, all right, I'll do it. He runs to the top of the attic. I don't know, for dramatic effect. He could have just sat there and done it. But he runs up to the window and he opens the window and then he calls out into the storm the dumbest name ever, Moonchild. Okay, it kind of ruins the anticlimactic of the story. But what happens as he cries out that name is it recreates that world that was broken. 
And the message from the angel and from the scripture and from Jesus is this, that there is a name that needs to be spoken into the darkness, into the brokenness that will bring healing and newness. It is a name that takes away your shame and takes away your guilt and gives hope. It's the name above all names, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. And the message from this morning from the angel is, come to him. He offers healing and forgiveness. Experience life that he offers. And once you do then, don't keep it to yourself. Go and tell that he is alive. And I think we're all in one of two places this morning. You either need to come and experience and know and believe because you are, you do not have hope. You, you do have shame. You do have sin. Maybe you don't think, oh, I'm a pretty good person. You don't understand that your sin has made a separation between you and God. And you need to come for the first time and believe and repent of sins and put your faith in him. That's where some of us are. And if you have questions, man, come grab us. That's why we're here. Come talk to us. That's the message, that's the message of the church, right? We teach a lot of things, but that's the main thing is that you can find hope and life and forgiveness in Christ. But most of us, who have that, we need to be challenged to the go and tell. We ain't so good at the go and tell. And you need to be reminded that God didn't bring you here and forgive you so you could just say, well, this is great, I get to go to heaven. It's so you would have an impact for him. That's next week's sermon, coming back and we'll talk about it. Which one are you this morning? Come and see, go and tell. Let me pray, we'll respond through singing. Man, I went over this sermon, but there ain't nothing after this, so I can go along this service. Okay, good. Let me pray, and then we'll sing. Father, I thank you for the truth of these words, the truth that Jesus is alive, that he gives hope and offers forgiveness. I pray that we as a church would not just sit on that message because the world is broken and needs to hear about your grace. So give us opportunity, open eyes and ears, draw men and women, boys and girls to yourself. Because you are a God who invites and says, come. It's in your name I pray. Amen.